Good evening and a very warm welcome to this, the first of our virtual summer school theme talks. This is Real Summer School hosted in virtual space. I am welcoming you on behalf of the summer school panel, which consists in alphabetical order by first name of Jane Blackall, Kate Brady McKenna, Louise Baumberg, Michael Allard, and Nicola Temple. We are all very happy to see you here this evening. It is honestly a delight to see all your faces. And I know that we will offer you a rich and spiritually nourishing evening. If you've been to summer school at Hucklow, you'll know that these talks are a central part of the event and a glorious combination of lecture and worship. And we are very excited to be able to bring them to you in this way. We feel we've assembled a fantastic team of speakers and we're hugely looking forward to hearing their different takes on our summer school theme of speaking truth in love, having the courage of our convictions in a post-truth age. Summer school theme talks are a chance for our speakers and our listeners to delve further than normal into important spiritual and social matters. This does mean that there will be a lot of talking to listen to, and we acknowledge that staring at a screen for a long time is tiring. So Louise gives you her blessing to rest your eyes from time to time by turning your cameras off. But she'd also like to be able to see your lovely faces most of the time. Please take care of your own needs. A few bits of housekeeping before I introduce Louise. This talk will be being recorded, as will all of our theme talks this week. If that makes you uncomfortable, you are welcome to turn your camera off. You will notice that the chat box isn't active and that you're muted to avoid distraction from outside noises. We're not expecting any untoward invasions, but our team of summer school panel members are a crack security force and will deal with anything that happens, so don't panic. Subtitles are automatically available for this session. You should be able to turn them on or off at the bottom of your screen. They promise around 80% accuracy, so please bear that in mind when reading them. Also bear in mind that they don't do very well with the word Unitarian, which could prove interesting. After the talk has ended, we'll take a five minute break for everyone to put the kettle on, and then we'll be offering you the chance to join a breakout room for further discussion on the talk. Not everyone loves breakout rooms, so you do have our blessing to leave at that point. After the breakout sessions, you'll be automatically returned to this room. The breakout rooms are not monitored, so I know that you'll be respectful of your own needs and those of everybody else. 
if you would like a pastoral conversation about anything that crops up during the session, Michael Allard and myself, both Unitarian ministers, are available until 9.45 this evening, either by email or Facebook Messenger. Uh, the details of how to contact us were sent out with your invitation. Our theme speaker this evening is Louise Baumberg. Louise has been a Unitarian for about 17 years and is a member of Godalming Unitarians. She first attended summer school in 2009, loved it, returned almost every year since, and is now on the summer school panel. Continuing a career of youth work and advising young people with a bit of English language teaching on the side, she's been fostering young refugees for nearly three years, works for a charity supporting young refugees, and has nearly finished a master's in refugee care. Other interests include pottery, baking, reading, kayaking, and spending what she says is far too much time on Facebook. So please now settle into a spirit of receptiveness and community. After our opening music, you will be in the very capable hands of Louise.
As we light this chalice, I am grateful that we are together, though apart, that just for this evening, we are a community, that we are sharing in the spirit of summer school, the spirit of truth and love. I welcome you to this first theme talk of Summer School 2020. Whatever our age, gender or sexuality, whatever our skin or hair colour, whatever the shape and proportion of our bodies, wherever in the world we were born, whatever languages we speak, whatever our beliefs, whatever our pain, sorrow or joy, we are all welcome here just as we are, whole and perfect. My reading is by Barbara Roder, entitled Poem in a Time of Peril, and will be followed by a short period of silence and a prayer. Of course, truth is hard. It is a rock. Yet, I do not think it will fall on me and crush me. I do not think they can hammer it to bits and stone me. Help me place the rock in the strong current of these rushing waters. I must climb on it. I must know how truth feels. When I plunge naked into the bright depths of these waters, I must know how truth feels. When I am swept by the cold fury of these waters, I must know with my whole being how truth feels. I shall remember how truth feels. I praise the rock. I praise the river. I fear the drought more than death by water. We create a prayer together when we remember to make a space. When we remember what is sacred in our world. When we remember all the blessings and miracles in our lives. When we remember to look at ourselves as we really are, when we remember to listen in silence, and when we remember the needs of others. These are the days that have been given to us. Let us rejoice and be glad in them. These are the days of our lives. Let us live them well in love and service. These are the days of mystery and wonder. 
let us cherish and celebrate them in gratitude together. These are the days that have been given to us. Let us make of them stories worth telling to those who come after us. I'm going to start my talk with a short piece by James Pierce, who's the founder of a charity which provides phone credit for refugees. And through the talk, I will be displaying some of the key quotes on the screen. It was a big shock to me when I went to the Calais jungle in 2015 to discover that the narrative I had heard in the media about the sorts of people who lived there was a total lie. I have spent my time since that first visit trying to spread the truth about what's actually happening, often finding myself angered and frustrated by the stubborn ignorance in people's responses. I have come to the conclusion that the reason this subject stirs up so much vitriol and hatred for so many is that these are the only emotions loud enough to block out a truth that's too appalling to comprehend. So people refuse to accept it and instead demonize the vulnerable in a bid to convince themselves that a total lack of compassion still somehow makes them a good person. The total ignorance of vast swathes of the general public about refugees and the commonplace lies that people subsequently believe and spread about them makes me absolutely sick to the pit of my stomach. It makes me so sick and angry that I will spend the rest of my life doing whatever I can to fight it. So, truths, truth, lies and ignorance. Let's start with the truth. How can we discern it and why is it important? But firstly, I should introduce myself and my relationship with truth. I am a very truthful person, or at least I like to think so. I even have a problem with white lies. That's not to say I've never told a lie. Of course I've told lies. In a very British way, to be honest, most of my lies are excuses about why I can't do something or why I don't want to do something because of course I can't tell people the real reason why I don't want to do something which is just because I don't want to do it but of course I make up a white lie as an excuse. So lies that help me out of a difficult spot are the ones that I find the easiest. When I genuinely conflicted about lying? Well for this you need to understand a little bit about my life. I'm a foster carer for young asylum seekers, which is interesting, rewarding, sometimes heartbreaking, and really one of the best things I've ever done. I love having two extra members of my family, and I love finding out about their culture, families, experiences, and seeing them develop. So the lie I want to tell them, because I so want it to be true, is 
it's all going to be okay. You're going to get your papers to be able to stay in the UK. Because of course, I know this might not be true. The Home Office in all its random decision-making, the system which in a significant proportion of cases turns down asylum applications can and does frequently disappoint. I know this from the statistics. I know this from experience. I know this from testimony. But in the moment, I so want to say it's going to be fine. Because what's the point of telling the truth? It's a real dilemma I don't have the answer to. Although I'm very truthful, I'm not very good at speaking up. I wonder if some of you feel the same. I find it difficult to speak up, to put myself out there, to make myself unpopular. I don't do it online and I'm really not great at doing it in person. What am I afraid of? I hold my hands up. I'm afraid of conflict. I'm afraid of personal attacks, even those limited to the online realm. I'm afraid that in argument, I could give a good account of myself. I'm afraid to find out the depth of the difference between us and my feelings about the other person and the unspeakable truth. I'm afraid that not only will I be unable to justify my values, but the other side will convince me or rather uncover that which is mean and selfish within me and claim me as one of their tribe. For me, it's more comfortable to speak with my actions. It's a different kind of speaking that at least can't be challenged as so-called empty words or virtue signaling. But I know it's a lot quieter. I speak with my work and family life with asylum seekers and refugees. I speak, but it's more of a whisper, if I'm honest, with my charity donations. And recently, I've started speaking about the environment by cutting out meat and dairy from my diet. That one is so quiet that it's mainly between me and Waitrose so far. As UK events have overtaken the writing of my talk, it was really not intended to be particularly focused on refugees. My experience has similarities to that of James Pierce, quoted earlier. People in small boats on the channel, or indeed in lorries, are not a new story to me, not even really refugees or asylum seekers, and certainly not an invading force or a threat. With friends who are Syrian refugees, it's nothing surprising to tell you that they're just people. With two foster sons and a whole youth group of boys and young men who arrived in the UK over the, over the last few years, the truth for me is that mostly they're just teenagers. Boys who like cricket or football, sometimes both, very occasionally neither. Boys who are sometimes kind, sometimes annoying, sometimes happy, and usually pretty terrible at getting up in the morning. From far away, a group of people may look like a horde, but what do they look like when we get up close? My experience is with refugees, but it feels overwhelming to think that I should really look more closely at everything. Who has the time? So now I have introduced myself and my relationship with the truth. I think we need to start at the beginning to look more closely at what we mean by truth. Now here's a content warning. 
This section contains some philosophy. Whatever your preconceptions about philosophy, please try and put them to one side. It's pretty obvious, but it may not always occur to us that there are different kinds of truths. And of course, there are many ways to define truth. Let's start with one. One thing we mean when we say something is true. Something is true if it corresponds with reality. For example, I ate a piece of toast for breakfast. It's either true or false. So long as all the information is provided, the day, the year, who I is, etc., and we can verify what actually happened, then if I ate a piece of toast for breakfast, it would be true to say, I ate a piece of toast for breakfast. As with all philosophical analysis, we start by asking a very profound question and end up with something which is completely banal and really tells us nothing interesting, unless you are specifically interested in my breakfast food habits. It's this which makes people wonder what the point of philosophy is. Bear with me. Then we can go on to look at a more general statement, but still based on events that have actually happened. So let's take a more interesting example. Black people have suffered discrimination over a long period up to and including the present day. So that's a statement. Compared to the breakfast example above, it's a very much wider statement. We are not saying that something happened to this person at this time. We are saying that in general, there is a pattern of incidents which disproportionately affect people of color. In this country, in the US, in the world, we haven't specified, but we could. We could also specify the exact time period we're looking at. In order to say to the standard of truth that we, we required about our breakfast, that black and ethnic minority people are discriminated against in the UK, we would have to define all the incidents and situations which could happen, find out the times they have happened, and by some sort of statistical analysis, prove that it is indeed the case that black people in the UK have fewer opportunities and suffer. Excuse me, just lost my place. Suffer from direct and indirect discrimination. I haven't done the analysis. I haven't really done a great, great deal of research, but I've read some stuff, watched a couple of YouTube videos, and I believe that statement to be true. However, there are many people in the UK, I guess predominantly white, who genuinely believe that not to be true. Some of the statements I've read on social media are along the lines of, I've got friends who are black and I treat everyone the same. Generalizing from those first-hand personal relationships to the entire state of race relations in the UK. There are so many arguments for and against that the open-minded person genuinely wanting to find out more is overwhelmed by statistics, distractions, justifications, straw men, comparisons and metaphors. So many things to unpack. So many complications. Also, so many feelings. You might feel it's all just too appalling to be true, just too complicated to think about, and too horrible to think that I might be implicated in systemic racism or have done racist things. Now, we move on from things that have happened 
to things that might happen in the future. By my earlier definition of truth, statements such as these cannot really be true or false because they haven't happened yet. For example, it will be fine, you'll get your papers. This is neither true nor false at the moment because the Home Office have not yet made their decision. But some things are more likely to happen than others. The sun will rise tomorrow. This isn't, by the definition we have given, true because it hasn't happened yet. But it's likely to be true because we know the physics of the universe and the chances of apocalyptic destruction of the solar system before tomorrow morning is, thankfully, vanishingly unlikely. This, of course, is related to general statements such as, the sun always rises in the morning. So possibly a more verifiable statement would be, the chances of the sun rising in the morning are close to 100%. You may find this logical and philosophical nitpicking is losing you. I don't blame you, but stick with it if you can. It's important groundwork. Then, the final type of truth I'm dealing with this evening are value statements. Black lives matter, all you need is love. Many philosophers define these as not capable of having a true or false value assigned. This is because they have in them an implicit statement of value, an ought. What we are saying by using these phrases is that black lives ought to matter. You should only need love. I'm absolutely not saying that they're not true. It's just that we have to bear in mind that the truth of them is a different kind of truth from what we've said before. The truth that means a statement corresponds with reality. We might call these moral or spiritual truths. These types of truths are hugely important to us, absolutely the most important when we're choosing the values for our lives and how we should act. These are the truths, the truths that are contained within the scriptures, stories, literature, the truths that say who we are, that color our judgments and indeed how we perceive the world. So, how do we come to acquire knowledge? How do we learn the truth? My parents were divorced when I was very small. As I got older, we all did the very British thing of not talking about any of it. Because it happened before I was three, I had no memory of the events at first hand. Things started being said when I got older and I realized that there were several different stories of what happened, not all of which could be true. Unquestionably, there is a truth of what happened. Who said what to whom and when, whose lawyer wrote, wrote, wrote which letter and so on. I realized that there would be absolutely no point in speaking to all the parties in an attempt to find out that truth because I felt that with all the different perspectives, truth at a distance of 20 years was essentially unknowable. But the truth was not unknowable, just not worth the hard work and strain on relationships that would take to get there. And I actually, I didn't need to know it. And I don't feel I need to know it now. But it's absolutely essential to find out the truth in, for example, who committed a crime, 
whether governments did have the correct information before making decisions and so on. These are complicated situations, often with many more players than my parents' divorce. The truth is important. So, how do we go about finding the truth? Most of us are not investigators, but sometimes it seems as though we need some of these skills. It's useful to critically look at the sources we use and the ways we come to believe a fact, and indeed, how we wade through the swamp of lies on the way there. Firstly, however, having drawn extensively from David Cody's book, What to Believe Now, and you may not agree with this, I would like to suggest that we have a large degree of, of sorry, a large degree of choice about what to believe. We do this partly by selecting our sources of information, be it the Guardian newspaper, George Takei on Facebook, books recommended by friends, following YouTube or Google algorithms, or using the readers who bought this also bought that on Amazon. Of course, these latter sources are laying out options for us, which we may not have chosen if we had a totally free choice. Be aware of that. Google search results may be different for you than for someone else. And Facebook algorithms may be pushing us towards particular content. We may, meet, we may read more specialist sources, such as trade or subscription newsletters, publications from pressure groups, Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, Amnesty, Momentum, Britain First, the Taxpayers Alliance, the Countryside Alliance. And we choose who we talk to. If we only mix with people who hold beliefs similar to ours and read only publications we agree with, this is a choice. We may not be fully aware of it, but it is a choice. Once we start reflecting on our sources of information, we need to be questioning their reliability. Are they telling us the truth? This, so much more than ever, is important in the era of fake news. We may have to examine our preconceptions about what is reliable and what isn't, about whether the established, respectable institutional sources, such as newspapers, are in fact reliable about whether the traditionally flaky, such as blogs, are in fact unreliable. As David Cody points out, rumour, so-called conspiracy theories and non-official channels of information are not necessarily less well-checked, reliable or truthful than conventional news organisations, if you look more deeply. If you are anything like me though, the thought that we may need to interrogate every single source in order to gauge its reliability will make your head spin. Many people who are thoughtful about selecting their sources and checking reliability use pragmatic shortcuts to find a range of sources that are trustworthy and stick with those. The key is to be mindful of the issues and aware that we just don't have the capacity to hear all voices, but they're still out there. My foster sons have certainly challenged me to justify my beliefs about what is true and started me thinking about different kinds of truth. And I gently probe their beliefs and how they come to form them, especially when we're talking about news, which for them normally comes via Instagram. Our conversations often go like this. Who's that? 
uh, general whatever. What's, what's he saying? He's saying that the Americans are responsible for this or that event. Oh, I'm not sure why they'd do that. He's saying because this, this and this. That sounds very confusing. Do you think that's true? Yes. Why do you think that? Well, General Whatever is a hero. He did this and this and he saved the country from this. So you think that he's a reliable person and that's why you believe him. Yes. If I've got stamina, I might go on to ask what other people's perspective be on the situation. To be honest, I'm usually none the wiser, but I do feel it's helpful to tease apart a little the unconscious evaluation of each source. It also helps to see that a person's web of existing beliefs and values is a massive determinant of the sources they're looking at and whether they believe what they're saying. The level of disinformation out there is breathtaking and scary. We can feel superior that we aren't taken in by theories that COVID-19 is a myth or that the world is ruled by lizard people, or we can see that we are subject to the same pressures as everyone else to believe things that aren't true and fail to see things that are true. In addition to choosing our sources, there is the issue of confirmation bias. This is the tendency to search for, interpret, favour and recall information that confirms or supports what we believe already. Thus, if I already believe that the UK is an unfair society, I will notice and add those instances of prejudice and discrimination that strengthen that belief. And I'm more likely to take less notice of or forget those who say they have been treated fairly. And of course, the reverse is true. If I already believe that the UK is a fair society, then I may dismiss instances of discrimination as aberrations. So this is a cognitive bias that has a significant effect on us and the way we acquire and hold on to our beliefs. It also has an impact on society by distorting evidence-based decision-making. You'll see that this bias makes it really difficult to change anyone's mind as we are all predisposed to hold on to our beliefs. It takes really hard work to be constantly aware of our confirmation bias and remain open to all evidence, to actually be open to the truth rather than just to those truths that sit comfortably with our beliefs. David Cody also points out that there is a bias towards presenting or thinking about issues in a binary way with only two sides. It's in our idiom, there are two sides to every story. Somehow it's easier to think that something is either true or false. A group of people are either all good or all bad. That in every war, conflict or argument has only two sides. Situations are rarely like that. And even if they are, the so-called balance that news outlets insist on can muddy the issue by implying that two sides have equal weight giving, for example, larger importance to climate change deniers than they deserve. Popular films, especially action films and superhero films, my favorite kind, are the same. It feels familiar and reassuring, but it's so clear who's good and who's bad. 
I remembered when I first started learning about the situation in the Kurdish part of Iraq, just south of the Kurdish autonomous region, where there are up to four or five different militias to watch out for, all with different agendas. My brain was just not up to dealing with the complexity of the situation. It didn't fit into any of my existing stories or scripts. Are we trying to fit the truth of the world into a story we already have and thus not seeing it clearly? But there's a danger. All this questioning of ourselves and our beliefs can paralyze us, preventing us from taking up a position from making a stand when those with strong, clear beliefs or simple self-interest are riding roughshod over people's rights, health and the well-being of the planet. We mustn't let our care and integrity about finding the truth stop us from standing up for our values. When it comes to truth, sometimes it's also a matter of emphasis the facts selected or choice of words. There are so many truths we could tell. I have blue nail varnish on, is one. It's not even important to me. I mean, it was important when I chose it, but now it's really not that important. It's not important to you and it's certainly not important to anyone else. It's not as important as say the number of people who have died of COVID-19 or the amount of money that an asylum seeker gets to live on per week. Sometimes we find that the facts of a situation are reported less than what certain people have said about them. Should the news report on what a famous but possibly lying or misguided public figure has said, sorry, that sentence came out wrong. Should the news report should the news report on what a famous but possibly lying or misguided public figure has said rather than what the facts actually are? Currently, there are many people crossing the channel on small boats. Rondi Plessis, who is also involved with the Phone Credit for Refugees charity, wrote inspiringly a couple of weeks ago. Words. Words are free, but how we use them has a cost. They can heal wounded hearts or break them. They can plant seeds or burn whole forests. She notes what politicians have said. Small boat crossings are appalling. Crossing the channel is a bad and stupid and dangerous and a criminal thing to do. Clandestine channel threat, heinous. And she continues. These are the words of UK leaders this week in relation to desperate refugees trying to reach the UK from Calais. The press this week appear to have been relishing in this fabricated villain story with the BBC referring to refugees as illegal migrants, while fewer and fewer people seem to remember seeking asylum is not a crime. Words are so important. They can shape our experiences, our beliefs, our very existence even. Many of our requesters may already understand the literal meaning of the words, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Whilst many more will unfortunately have to face the metaphorical meaning as they try to rebuild their lives. 
we might not be able to stop the words of war or even to control the words of our own politicians who seek to make scapegoats of the most vulnerable. But we can decide how to use the power of our own tongues to speak out against them. We can choose to speak life. Just as we can use words in different ways to describe the same situation, we can distract and confuse with our statements. As Hannah Wilson wrote, it's easy to say something which is technically correct, but intentionally misses the point instead of taking an actual position. All lives matter is a correct statement that intentionally misses the point. Rioting is wrong is a correct statement that intentionally misses the point. Not all cops are bad is a correct statement that intentionally misses the point. But people love to say these things because it makes them feel like a good person, when in reality they're just searching for a reason to look the other way. The truth is ugly and inconvenient, so they latch onto some minor inconsequential statement to discredit the whole thing in their heads and sleep soundly at night. So our job, if we want to discern the truth, is to check that the facts are true, including the words used. Are they accurate? We need to get some sort of feeling of whether the facts presented are the most relevant facts to the situation. Perhaps there are other facts that are being glossed over. Likewise, with the value statements, a different type of truth from facts. Are these relevant or irrelevant? Are they a distraction from the core issue? Our values and opinion will dictate which facts we think are relevant. If our goal is to tell the truth, which truths are we going to tell? In a true democracy, the people have correct and clear information about the current state of the country, what happened in the past, and what the candidates plan to do in the future. If we don't have the information to make an informed decision on who we want to be running our country, then our vote is meaningless. This is extraordinarily relevant in today's world, where we are confused by fake news and so-called alternative facts. Now, you've been listening very well. What I would like you to do is take the opportunity to have a bit of a stretch, wiggle about. You've got about 30 seconds. I'm gonna take a drink, so have a stretch. Wiggle your hands. Maybe shake your feet out a little bit. And I will continue in probably about 10 seconds now. Okay, all stretched out and ready to continue. So, do we have a duty to find out the truth about everything? There are just too many facts in the world. Surely it's not feasible to find out everything about everything. Should we always share the truth? And how loudly should we shout? How hard should we try to be heard? Should we try to change other people's minds when we know that they believe things that aren't true? 
George Orwell's 1984 imagines a world where the truth is almost completely lost. The past, he reflected, had not merely been altered, it had been actually destroyed. For how could you establish even the most obvious fact when there existed no record outside your own memory? Everything melted into mist. Sometimes, indeed, you could put your finger on a definite lie. It was not true, for example, as was claimed in the party history books, that the party had invented aeroplanes. He remembered aeroplanes since his earliest childhood, but you could prove nothing. There was never any evidence. And in that world, Winston Smith felt like that. He was a lonely ghost uttering the truth that nobody would ever hear. But so long as he uttered it, in some obscure way, the continuity was not broken. It was not by making yourself heard, but by staying sane that you carried on the human heritage. He went back to the table, dipped his pen and wrote. To the future or to the past, to a time when thought is free, when men are different from one another and do not live alone, to a time when truth exists and what is done cannot be undone. From the age of uniformity, from the age of solitude, from the age of Big Brother, from the age of doublethink, greetings. We live in a different world where we are, thankfully, very unlikely to be the only one speaking a truth. Winston Smith and all who speak out under oppression challenge us to speak the truth in our world where it is easier, and the dangers of speaking out relatively minimal. He also highlights another reason to face the truth and tell the truth, for our own sanity. When our lives are congruent with our beliefs, we have a secure identity. Living a lie or telling lies is harmful to our own sense of integrity. Thinking again of the current channel crossing crisis, what is our duty to the truth in this situation? With mainstream news media telling a story that doesn't represent the whole truth, and the majority of the population appearing to believe that, I'm angry. However, I feel my voice is very small. Do I have a duty to speak, and in what way? Is there a minimum acceptable level Signing a petition, for example. We are challenged when we try to quantify what our duty is to speak the truth. And then we come up against those truths that are almost unbearable for us to face. This poem by Nancy Flowers illustrates our dilemma. The truth I seek. I do not search for the truth that lies upon the tranquil faces of the dead or burns in the eyes of hungry children. I seek unrealities, dreams, the mist that covers barren hills, things which are beautiful, fleeting and lies. 
in a moment, I will read that poem again and some music will play. During this time of quiet, I invite you to consider what truths are, for you, hard to face. I have no intention to push you to difficult places, so please take responsibility for your own well-being. So after I have read the poem again, there will be music and an invitation to think about any truths you find hard to face. The truth I do not search for the truth that lies upon the tranquil faces of the dead or burns in the eyes of hungry children. I seek unrealities, dreams, the mist that covers barren hills, things which are beautiful, fleeting and lies. Louise, please could you unmute yourself? Okay, thank you. There are so many truths in our personal lives that are hard to face about sickness, about health, about relationships, about ourselves. Please do take care of yourself if any of these have been preying on your mind. 
There are also many world issues that are hard to face. So much injustice, so much suffering. As you know, I work with refugees. I may have mentioned it a couple of times already. And I led a service at Godalming Unitarian, Godalming Unitarians about the stories of refugees. And of course, each one of the approximately 71 million refugees has their own unique story, their own unique truth. The stories and experiences I shared were very everyday for me. But as I looked out over the tear-stained faces in the chapel, I felt bad because perhaps I'd said too much. And yet there was still so much more I could have said. Afterwards, I was thanked for telling the truth, but maybe I should have told more of the happy stories and fewer of the despairing ones. Would there be a correct or true balance? Would it have been untruthful to just focus on the hopeful stories? And I wondered, is the telling of difficult truths an act of love? The issue that I find almost impossible to face, let alone speak about, is the climate and environmental catastrophe that appears to be underway. I read the headlines about warming oceans, melting ice sheets, burning rainforests, and choose not to click through to the articles. Of course, we can't say what will or will not happen in the future, but scientific evidence, current facts, and the consensus of a large number of reputable climate scientists support the prediction that the Earth may become uninhabitable, or at least uninhabitable for the current population within a generation. When I think about it, my body feels shaky, my stomach slightly queasy, and I desperately want a plausible lie, albeit fleeting and dreamlike, to save me from that discomfort. One of my foster sons has missed a lot of basic education and it became apparent that he had no idea about climate change or, or anything really to do with the environment. In the moment before we covered that slide while doing his science homeschooling, I wondered to myself, does he really need to know this? He's had a lot of sadness in his life and lots to worry about without knowing about the state of the planet, which he can't personally save. I love him and I don't want him to have more to worry about. You may be familiar with the red pill, blue pill scenario from the film, The Matrix. Unfortunately, red pill, blue pill has been somewhat twisted in recent right wing, right wing online discourse. However, going back to the original idea from the film, I sometimes wish that there was, as in the film, a blue pill that I could take to remain in blissful ignorance. We're going to take a moment to consider that. If there was a choice and you could take a red pill to become aware of all the unvarnished, often unpleasant truths of the world, or a blue pill to become oblivious and be happy, how would you approach each option? How do you feel when you think about them? Tempted, scared, repulsed, ambivalent? Just a short time of quiet for you to think about that. Describing the film Children of Men 
set in a dying world in the near future. Gavin Jacobson writes, society is held together by a combination of barbed wire and people's desire to live as normal, to take it on the chin, to muddle through, to keep calm and carry on. When Theo asks his cousin Nigel, a senior government official, how he copes with it all, the response underscores the mortal consequences of self-regard. I try not to think about it. So, one strategy is to try not to think about it, which I think is mostly my strategy. Maybe it's yours from time to time as well. Another approach is to deny the truth. It's interesting to think about the reasons why certain very uncomfortable truths are denied. Climate change being one, but racial discrimination is another, the realities of conflicts, the essential humanity of refugees, and the shortcomings of iconic national figures, such as Winston Churchill, are other examples. Taking a psychoanalytic view, the denial of unbearable truths is a defense against something which threatens the psyche or possibly something fundamental in a person's identity. John Steiner writes about the story of Oedipus, who unknowingly kills his father and marries his mother, and argues that not only does the story of Oedipus tell us something about the desires of the childhood and adult psyche, which was of course Freud's theory, but equally important, importantly illustrates the phenomenon of turning a blind eye, a state of knowing and yet not knowing, of failing to ask the right questions when the truth is available, a truth which has unbearable consequences. Unbearable implications, in fact. In the Oedipus story, Oedipus and other characters have plenty of opportunities to find the truth of what has happened, and yet they fail to take these opportunities. They fail to put the truth, the clues together. They fail to ask even the most obvious questions because, in essence, they don't want to know. The coming of the plague, interpreted as the wrath of the gods, is what forces Oedipus to finally ask the right questions and find out the unbearable truth of what he has done. Writing in 1985, John Steiner discusses the social and political implications of turning a blind eye. I believe we turn a blind eye to a number of dangers which, which threaten our society and our future. Unemployment at home and poverty and starvation in the third world are examples. But it seems to be, above all, the build-up of nuclear weapons which poses such a threat that neither we nor our leaders can properly comprehend it. Yet, all the information pointing to the seriousness of the situation is available and we seem to have to avoid drawing the unhappy conclusions which a realistic appraisal would demand. We can only carry on our lives as normal by turning a blind eye. It seems to me that one of the problems with facing the difficult truths is what do we do? What can we do? What should we do? How can we live if and when we have faced them? This is a question that encompasses the psychological, the spiritual, the moral and the political. Perhaps the serenity prayer, 
written by Reinhold Niebuhr in 1932, can offer us some guidance. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Reflecting on this at some length, I now realize that the question I posed just a moment ago was the wrong one. Rather than asking what can we do when we are faced by difficult truths, we need to break it down further. Meeting an unbearable truth with the idea that we need to immediately react to it in some way, tell someone about it, sign a petition, write a letter, volunteer, give money, make lifestyle changes, is part of what makes us feel overwhelmed. I've often struggled with the Buddhist practice of acceptance. I thought it's all very well to accept the thoughts and worries that come into your mind while meditating, but we can't just accept the terrible things that go in, on in the world. It makes no sense. But now I think I've finally had a light bulb moment a mini enlightenment, if you will. Maybe, just maybe, the Buddha was saying that we should simply sit with the truth as it is, in all its beauty or ugliness, or more likely a mixture of the two. Maybe to sit with it, rather than rushing to decide what to do about it, who to tell, how to tell it, what action to take, worry about whether they're the right actions, and then, with our acceptance of the truth, and only then, we will be able to decide how we will act. The truth may be appalling. Tough to sit with that. But is it any better to turn a blind eye and live with that unease in the back of your mind? The truth may be that there is uncertainty, and we can sit with that too. I actually find it enormously comforting to think that facing the truth, I don't need to rush straight into deciding what to do and taking action. Separating those two stages and being mindful about each one makes each of them feel so much more manageable. Fortunately, we're not sitting alone with the difficult truths, with the uncertainty. We have wise and loving people around us. Please take a moment to look at all the faces on your screen and appreciate each other. I'm going to change my screen to, there we go. If you change your screen to gallery view, you can see everybody's faces. Perhaps close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind family, friends, colleagues. We are not alone. That's another truth. 
And when it comes to action, many writers emphasize the long arc of change. The idea that we work towards an end which may take a long time to arrive at and our actions will be a very small contribution towards achieving the ultimate goal. With problems that seem overwhelming, this is a positive approach, as John Lewis, the American civil rights activist who recently passed away, writes. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. My closing words are a prayer and also, I hope, encapsulate in a very few words what I have probably used far too many words to explain. Our prayer today. May we have the wisdom and persistence to discern the truth. May we have the courage to face the truth. May we have the serenity to sit with the truth. May we have the audacity to speak the truth. May we draw on the strength of those around us and in uncertain times, may we, may we live by the values we hold to be true.